When a famous person dies and people write about them, there tend to be three types of, or three types of writing that get made, and they come in stages. Firstly, you get obituaries that tell us what a person did. Then after a while, people begin to publish collections of letters and speeches that tell us what a person said. And then eventually, you get the works that look behind the words and the deeds to discover what a person was, examining character, motivation, and to see what they're really like. We've seen something of this pattern in the first three sermons in this series. When Barry took us through Mark, he made the point, Mark is looking at what, mostly at what Jesus did. Matthew and Luke included far more about what Jesus said, recording more of his preaching and his teaching. Now, we know that John probably wrote his gospel towards the end of the first century. Dates of around 80 to 90 AD are typically suggested. So potentially some 20 or more years after the last of the, of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is primarily concerned with Jesus' identity, with who he was. And this becomes apparent when you consider John's stated purpose in writing his gospel, which he explains at the end of the book in chapter 20, 30 to 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Now, we can easily misinterpret this passage, because the tense that's used in Greek, the present continuous tense, is not one that readily translates into English. It means to continue doing something, and perhaps most easily understood by adding go on into the right place. So John's purpose might be better translated, but these are written so that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by going on believing, you go on having life in his name. This isn't a book principally intended to bring somebody to a new faith, although it may well do that. It is aimed much more at the existing believer, to reinforce, to confirm an existing faith. And John signposts his statement of purpose consistently throughout his book. He talks about Jesus as the Son of God some 138 times. Life, i.e. eternal life, is mentioned 50 times. Faith, or believing in Christ, is mentioned nearly 100 times. And faith here isn't mere intellectual acceptance of historical fact, but a personal trust in Jesus. As James said in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons' head knowledge, the intellectual acceptance of the facts about who Jesus is, won't save them. And that same sort of knowledge about him won't save us either. At the very start of his gospel, John makes some very specific statements about Jesus, who Jesus is. In the first five verses, he talks about Jesus as the word, the logos. Logos means not only the spoken word, but the thought expressed by that spoken word. John is saying that as a spoken word utters a thought, Jesus utters God. He reveals God to us. As Hebrews 1, 1-2 puts it, 
Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. And John made three other statements about who Jesus was in these opening verses. He says Jesus pre-existed with God and was God in verses 1 to 2. He says that Jesus was the agent of creation and the source of life in 3 and 4. And that Jesus was the light of men, 4 and 5. Not a physical light, but a moral and spiritual light that came into our dark world. And John then talks about Jesus coming into the world with a passage that's a summary of his whole gospel. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, Israel, God's chosen people. And his own people, the Jews, did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God, a new spiritual birth. And this leads into the verse that lays down the key message that John wants to make throughout his book. The word became flesh in verse 14. And this is the truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. The word, Jesus, who was from God, who was God from all eternity, became flesh, assuming a a true human nature like our own. Jesus Christ is the God-man, one person, at once both wholly divine and wholly human. And with this dual nature, he came and lived here among us, full of grace and truth. As the only person who's seen God, as John tells us in verse 18, Jesus made God known to us. Paul made the same point about Jesus in Colossians 1 verse 15, where he said, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. At the time John was writing his gospel, there were some people who, while accepting that Jesus was a divine being of some sort, were denying that Jesus was one with God. And there were others that, holding fast to the Godhead of Jesus, doubted he was really human. And John is at pains to address both of these errors and show Jesus as he truly is. Throughout the gospel, John identifies witnesses who testify to Jesus. Besides people such as the Samaritan woman, 439, the disciples in 1527, and of course John himself as an eyewitness, 1935, John also points to Scripture, 539, to the Father in 536, and the Holy Spirit in 1526. But perhaps the most important evidence he puts forward for the truth of who Jesus is is the works that Jesus did himself, which are divided in 536. John only records seven miraculous actions by Jesus, less than the other Gospels. But he doesn't call them miracles, which is simply works of supernatural power. John calls them signs. These signs he has picked to show some aspect of divine truth and to display the glory or essential nature of the incarnate Son. There's the turning of the water into the wine at the wedding in Cana, we read about in 2, 1 to 11. It's the first sign. It was a dramatic, or is a dramatic representation of what Jesus came to do. 
the transformation of the old order of the law into the new order of grace. By his regenerating power, Christ transfigures and enriches the whole life of mine, of, of man, like water is richer and fuller than, sorry, wine is richer and fuller than water. There's the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, 46 to 54, which illustrates the nature and the necessity of faith. Clearly, the noble had faith that Jesus could heal his son. He believed it could be done, but only face to face. Hence, his request to Jesus to come down before my son dies. But when Jesus told him to go and promised his son would live in verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word. He trusted his promise and his faith was rewarded. You've got the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in 522 to 9. That man had been crippled for 38 years. And the miracle shows that Jesus is the restorer of lost powers. William Temple wrote a book on John's Gospel in 1945, and he said in it, our fellowship with Christ not only hallows and intensifies all the power that we have when we first meet him, he restores those which are atrophied by neglect or abuse. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, verses 4 to 13, showed Jesus as the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy the spiritual hunger of the human heart. Jesus walking on the water in 6, 16 to 21, demonstrates that Christ is the companion whose presence in the storm of life not only brings peace, but guides the disciples safely to their desired harbour. Granting sight to the man born blind in 9.1-7 reveals Jesus as the giver of light. It represents the spiritual illumination resulting from faith in Christ that enables the believer to say, once I was blind, but now I see. And of course, the greatest miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in 11.1-14, shows Christ as our life as well as our light. As the gospel repeatedly stresses, Jesus' mission was to bring eternal life within reach of all. As Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But Jesus didn't only make claims through his actions. The discussions and teaching sessions John includes can make, make his claims explicit and definite, whether it's talking of himself as living water to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, 7 to 15, the bread of life to the crowd after the feeding of the 5,000, or describing himself as the good shepherd in 10, 1 to 19 to the Pharisees. But much of Jesus' teaching is summed up in the I am statements. Statements, incidentally, that shoot down any idea that people have that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God or that he was just a good teacher. As C.S. Lewis put it, if Jesus was just a good teacher, but he said the things that are recorded about him, how could he have been good? Because either they're lies, or he's gone mad, or they're true. And if, he's, if they're true, he's not just a good teacher, he is the son of God. Let's remind ourselves of what Jesus said. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will be never, never be thirsty. In 6.35. In 8.12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
In chapter 10, verses 7 to 9, he said, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and bandits, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. In 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. In 14.16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in 15, verse 1 and verse 5, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, these claims brought Jesus into conflict with the Jewish authorities, who consistently rejected his claims and sought to silence him. Yet those same words, those same works, those same signs increased and strengthened the faith of disciples, as we can see in John 6, 68. Many of Jesus' followers had turned away. They were unable to accept the teaching that he was giving. And then Jesus asked the disciples if they wanted to go too. Do you remember what Peter replied? Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yet we must recognize that while the authorities, the one that John repeatedly refers to in his gospel as the Jews, rejected him, others didn't. And Jesus was, for example, much more accepted by people in the north than he was in Jerusalem, as we see in John 7.1. Said after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He didn't wish to go about in Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Chapter 12 of the Gospel then marks the end of Jesus' public ministry, and the remainder of the book talks about the Last Supper and Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, mostly dealing with the interactions between Jesus with his disciples as he prepared them for what was to come. And this started with Jesus washing their feet in chapter 13, verses 5 to 11. By this act, by taking on the role of the lowest servant in a household, Jesus demonstrated the attitude that they and we should have. As Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was in, that, in light of that act of washing of the disciples' feet, that humbling of himself, and of his appending death, the step of further degradation that he was facing, that Jesus gave the disciples and us his new commandment in 1334 to 35. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This was a new commandment because it applied to the church, a new society, the society of believers. And it was new because it required a new standard of love. It was required that same self-sacrificial love that Jesus had shown 
by humbling himself to come into the world and was going to show even more by going to his death in the most shameful, painful, protracted and public manner, nailed to a cross. Jesus also emphasized that the disciples needed to keep in spiritual contact with him, using the illustration of the vine. The disciples, and of course we here in Amesbury, cannot bear fruit unless we abide in Jesus, in the way a vine branch abides in the vine. And this teaching about the vine comes between two parts of Jesus' promise about the Holy Spirit in 14, 15 to 26 and 15, 26 and 27. We should take that lesson of abiding in Jesus to heart, but look at its context. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, Christ in us, Christ's other self. Jesus makes this clear in the way he identifies with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't given to us to compensate for Christ's absence, but to ensure his presence in our lives. It's in the power of his Spirit that Jesus sends the disciples into the world, to send us into the world to bear witness. The warnings Jesus gives about how we'll be treated in 15, 18 to 16, 4, remain true. And so many of our brothers and sisters around the world experience that daily. As Christians, we haven't been called to an easy road. It's narrow, it's hard. Matthew 7, 13 to 15 tells us that but it is the road that leads to life. Jesus and the disciples then went over that evening to Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed and arrested which was in 18, 12, 1 to 12. And through the narrative of Jesus' arrest and the various trials that follow leading up to his crucifixion, John shows that Jesus was actually the one in control of events. Pilate challenged Jesus at one point, in 1910, Jesus, Pilate therefore said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I've got the power to release you and the power to crucify you? And Jesus said to him, you would have no power over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Even on the cross, despite the appearance that his enemies had won, Jesus was still in control. Look at John 19.30. At the very end, Jesus gave up his spirit. He didn't die from the effect of being crucified the way the criminals either side of him did. He surrendered his life voluntarily rather than being taken from him. And John takes pains to show the fulfillment of the divine plan in Jesus' suffering. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he had completed the work he came to do. The Greek word used is tetelestai. It's typically used in commercial transactions to mark that a bill was fully paid, the debt was clear, the transaction was complete. The cross was, rather than the shame that it was typically perceived as, Christ's glory. Look at 12.23. It was his glory because by his self-sacrificing love, he perfectly accomplished the Father's will. He made atonement for the sins of the world. He vanquished the power of death and he opened the kingdom of heaven to all who believe. And the glorification of Jesus includes the whole of his redemptive action. Not only his death, but his resurrection too. John makes clear that the tomb, apart from the undisturbed grave clothes, was empty. The grave clothes provide evidence the body hadn't been stolen. 
Otherwise, the, cloth, the clothes would have gone too with the thief. Something far more amazing had happened. Jesus was, Jesus is alive again. And the resurrection is a vital part of our faith. And without it, as 1 Corinthians 15, 16 to 18 tells us, our faith would be futile. For the, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised. Mary saw him. The disciples saw him. Thomas saw him. And Thomas went from doubt to worship. Look at John 20, 28 to 29. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. John started his gospel describing Jesus as the son of God. He ends it with the disciples worshipping Jesus as the Son of God. We haven't seen what Thomas saw, but we do have the record of the four Gospels that we've looked at over the last few weeks. Have you accepted that the Jesus shown in those Gospel accounts is the Son of God, is the Saviour of the world, is your Saviour? If you have, if you've met him, if you've had that personal account with him, if you have his Holy Spirit within you, then we, you, me, everyone else who knows Jesus, needs to ensure we're faithful witnesses, telling those we meet about our wonderful Saviour. And if not, if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord, I pray that seeing Jesus as he's been revealed in these Gospels has touched your hearts, that you will seek to know him, so that you too can accept him as your Lord and Saviour.